Hello, welcome back to Honor of Kings on Kingdom in Context. I am Sean Griffin. I'm glad to have you back here with me. I'm joined by my co-host. Ken Heidebrecht. Sean, how are you doing, buddy? Hey, Ken. Welcome back this week. Guys, if you're just tuning in, we're, we're going to do uh, an amazing episode. We're glad you're here with us. The first of this uh, episode, we're going to recap the previous episodes to catch you up for anyone that, that hasn't maybe seen all the previous episodes. Um, and then we're going to actually go into what Enoch defines as the possible identity to the tree of life. I'm ecstatic about the this tree one. tree of life, we, Sean, really? The tree of life, we found some amazing um, uh, some amazing information about what the Enoch claims to be the tree of life. We're going to actually connect it at the end of the show to the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation, and how Yeshua responds to that. And then uh, we're going to review the scriptures of the canon throughout as we compare Enoch's claims of the tree of life. Guys, stick with us to the end. It's going to have, in my opinion, an amazing ending. And uh, we welcome you back. Thanks. Ken, I'm excited about this episode for a ton of reasons. All right, I think that um, I think that this episode may be maybe the biggest episode we're 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 doing this season on Honor of Kings. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I I don't want to boast too much, Sean, because I think our last episode where we covered uh, Sheol and all that's entailed with that compartment that is fascinating in and of itself. Um, I think that we're we're going to be approaching some really, really fascinating chapters that, that come right after Sheol. And so um, not to boast, but I think we might be onto something really interesting here, Sean. Yeah, man, as we were researching for this and we took a week off last week, um, it was a holiday weekend. We both had things that were going on, um, but it gave us time to do a little extra research on this particular idea that we found here in these following chapters. We're going to discuss this week in the book of Enoch and guys, hold on to your hats, man. Like this is, this is one that, um, I think people will, hopefully people will get a lot out of, uh, you'll find a lot of encouragement in because this is something that it's always been there in the scriptures, but just because Enoch kind of mentioned it, suddenly it, it popped out with more relevance to me. And then I started doing alternate research into other history that's been done. And there's so much supporting evidence for this idea you guys, uh, may, as you as we go through this, if you have any questions about what we're talking about, be sure to put them in the comments so we can address them. And um, and as always, be sure to like, subscribe, and share. If you're not already a member of Kingdom of Context, go ahead and subscribe. That way you're notified for new videos so you don't miss anything in the future. Because um, to me, if you were to miss out a video like this, I don't know, I just I, I feel like this could help clear up a lot of questions that believers have. And just like these previous episodes, Ken, what do you know? It comes from the book of Enoch. Yes, it definitely follows along with our theory of why this book would be removed by people who don't want um, believers like us having the information that's contained within because there's just so much in it that if we had it, you know, readily available within our Canada 66, there would just be no questions. So... Yeah. yeah. So, Sean, I think I'll just start off with the reading some summaries here from previous episodes just to catch up our viewers here with um, if they haven't followed along in the previous episodes there. Cool, brother. Take it away. Okay. So, episode one, the end from the beginning, we cover chapters one to six. 
So chapter one starts off with an Enochian blessing to those who will be living in the day of tribulation. Enoch asserts that God showed him a vision by way of his holy watcher angels of the Holy One in the heavens. And we, dis we discuss how this is a reference to our coming Messiah, Yeshua. Enoch states that what was revealed to him pertained to a future generation to come. And we speculated that this was in reference to the latter days generation leading up to the return of Yeshua on the day of the Lord. We are given descriptions surrounding the day of the Lord and how the watcher angels who rebelled during the days of Jared, as found in Genesis 6 and the book of Jubilees, will be quaking at the appearing of the Holy One who comes from above the firmament. Uh, chapter 2, we discuss some of the details of creation, summer and winter, and how the luminaries perform their appointed orders. In chapter 3, we briefly touch base on the winter season and deciduous and evergreen trees. Chapter 4 briefly mentions the summer, the sun, and how the sun heats the earth. And chapter 5, we discuss how Yahweh created things a specific way and that he ordained creation to operate as he had commanded it to. Uh, we also have a juxtaposed eschatological reality for both the righteous souls of men who will be given salvation, mercy, and forgiveness of their sins because they desire to remain in covenant and keep the instructions of God, and for the unrighteous souls of men who will be dealt with severely for their lack of commandment and adherence and for their harsh words against God and his greatness. And finally, chapter 6, we expound upon one of the most controversial chapters of Scripture, Genesis 6. As it relates to the details, Enoch provides us where the sons of God, who are angels, are found concerning themselves with the daughters of men in a way that forced them to make a pact upon the summit of Mount Hermon so as to go through with their mischievous plans of the next chapter. We are introduced to Simyaza, who's a name of one of the chief angels, and some of the other chief dissenting watcher angels. Then in episode two, we called it Rebel Angels and Giants. We cover chapters seven and eight of Enoch. In chapter seven, we discuss how the angels of chapter six took wives from the daughters of men and were found to be defiled in the process. The daughters of men give birth to giants, and we speculate how the incredible stature of these giants may have involved the process regarding the secret knowledge of root cutting, which was one of the heavenly secrets that the angels taught mankind. The giants reek utter havoc upon the earth and eat everything they come into contact with. Much bloodshed is done on the earth. We discuss the term lawless ones in light of Yahweh's eternal law. And then in chapter eight, we're introduced to the character named Azazel. And we discuss the various things that he taught men and the implications his teachings had and have had on humanity. We go into further details surrounding what the other angels taught mankind so as to lead them astray into lawlessness. And men perish at alarming rates because of the iniquity of the giants and their angelic fathers. And we discuss the souls of men crying out as their distress signals reach the gates of heaven. Then in episode three, God responds to the watchers. When we go over chapters nine to 11, in chapter nine, we elaborate on the roles that several watcher angels were given in terms of presenting the suits of men before the throne of Yahweh. The good watchers, while performing one of their various duties, remind Yahweh as to what is taking place on the earth and incite him for permission to interject so as to address the ongoing bloodshed, lawlessness, and chaos that is taking place due to the rebellion of Azazel, Samyaza, and Samyaza's cohorts. And in chapter 10, Noah is told that judgment is coming upon the world and that he is to hide himself and is taught how he can escape the coming deluge so as to preserve his righteous seed for a post-flood posterity. 
Yahweh pronounces specific time-related judgments upon Azazel, Semyaza, and his associates, and the reprobate sons of the Watchers. We discuss what it means for Azazel to have all sin ascribed to him and speculate on when his judgment takes place. We elaborate on the ultimate result of these punishments and how they correspond with the lake of fire. The plant of righteousness and truth is referenced in this chapter, and we draw attention to who that is and what that means for those in the day when he will appear. Then in chapter 11, the day of the Lord store chambers are briefly discussed in this small chapter. Then in episode four, we called No Mercy. We go over chapters 12 to 14. In chapter 12, Enoch is hidden from men and has started to associate himself with the watchers. We discuss the message that Enoch received from the holy watchers and the judgment. No peace or forgiveness of sin. That was to befall the angels that left their heavenly abode so as to defile themselves with the blood of women. In chapter 13, Azazel is given a separate judgment pronouncement to that of the other watchers who took wives and begat giants by them. Due to the severity of their judgment, the angels ask Enoch to petition Yahweh on their behalf for the forgiveness of their crimes because they are unable to do it themselves for leaving their first estate and defiling themselves. Enoch writes out each and every one of their petitions, reads them while sitting at the base of Mount Hermon, and falls asleep while doing so. Enoch is given visions while in his sleep and wakes up and tells the watchers about the visions he received, which had to do with reprimanding them. Then in chapter 14, we discuss the various aspects of Enoch's vision in light of the biblical creation model, as well as the fires, portals, habitations, walls, angelic entities, and descriptions of the Most High. In episode 5, which we called Origin of Demons, we went over chapters 15 to 17. In chapter 15, we discussed the conversation had between Yahweh and Enoch as it related to the Watchers petitioning him on behalf of Enoch. We expound upon the mechanics and implications involving angelic spirit beings mixing with men and the resulting offspring. We discuss demons, unclean spirits, and their origins as we are given the information pertaining to how they came into existence. And in chapter 16, we are given this time period for when the unclean spirits will be terminated from existence and how they will destroy men on earth up until their appointed time of judgment. The watchers are again reminded that they will not have peace. Then in chapter 17, Enoch is escorted to various places above the firmament by the hand of angels and is shown a variety of fascinating things. Episode 6, we called Angelic Bodies and the Lake of Fire, and we covered chapters 18 to 20. In chapter 18, we discuss, we further discuss the creation model and speculate that there seems to be land, water, mountains, thrones, uh, Yeshua's we speculate, and a host of other things as it relates to the new Jerusalem above the firmament of heaven. The prison of the stars, who are called the luminaries, that transgress their orders is briefly discussed. In chapter 19, we discuss the prison for the angels who defile themselves with women and how it relates to the end times. The idea and misconception of sirens is addressed as it pertains to the judgment made upon the women who played a part in seducing the sons of God. In chapter 20, we are given the names and roles of a select few elite watcher angels, and we briefly discuss their roles. And finally, in episode 7, our previous episode, we titled Sheol, Tartarus, and the Prison of the Stars, and we went over chapters 21 and 22. Chapter 21, once again, Enoch is shown the chaotic place where the seven stars, or luminaries, are being held due to their transgressions. Enoch is taken to a more terrifying place than the former and is told that it is reserved for the rebellious angels, 
we discussed the parallels between Tophet, Gehenna, Hell, and the Lake of Fire. Then in chapter 22, Enoch is taken to Sheol, and we spend the better portion of this episode discussing Sheol as it relates to the souls of righteous and unrighteous men, the overall environment, the eschatological implications, and biblical correlations to this controversial compartment. And that's pretty much everything up to this um, episode for today, John. Man, it's been been so many fun episodes. We've we've discussed a lot of material, Ken, and uh, there's a great summation of you know each episode with the the major things that we discussed from each chapter. Guys, if you haven't already seen those previous episodes and some of the things that we mentioned in the summaries, struck a question for you. You know, please feel free to to ask any questions in the comments below, um, as well as in the description of this video, we're going to put the links to those previous videos that we just summarized, so you can go back and watch those and kind of be caught up. Um, then this particular episode we're doing now, we're jumping into epi- uh, chapters 23 and 24 of the Book of Enoch, and this particular episode um, is kind of special to me because, to me, it, it it's man, it it makes sense of some things that I've had questions about for a long time. So without further ado, I'm just going to start reading 23 and Enoch chapter 23, and then um, we'll go from there. This is uh, verse 1. From thence I went to another place, to the west of the ends of the earth, and I saw a burning fire which ran without testing, excuse me, without resting, and paused not from its course day or night, but ran regularly. And I asked, saying, What is this which rests not? Then Raguel, one of the holy angels who was with me, answered me and said unto me, this course of fire, which you have seen, as is the fire in the west, which persecutes all the luminaries of heaven. Yeah, that's interesting, Sean, because so, um, for myself, right, this this last uh, verse here, where it, it says that it persecutes all the luminaries of heaven, there's a bit of a parenthesis um, yeah. in the word persecutes, which makes contextual sense to me because um, in other versions I've read, that's not there. So it doesn't really um, make a whole lot of sense without that word in there, to be honest with you. Yeah. What do you think about that? And to me, it's almost as if the, the, the concept from the context, it's almost like the word persecute is using to mean um, like it is the thing that kind of pushes these things along in their course. If that makes any sense, like yeah. it's not being persecuted as as we would think of being persecuted in human relationship where one person is being oppressing another for a particular belief or, or ideology, um, whether physically or mentally or emotionally. But this is almost in the sense that the luminaries of heaven are being, you know, kept on their course regularly by this fire, basically, uh, which is which is interesting. And of course, we have. Raguel, right? He's back. He's mentioned again, you know, because what we read in previous chapters, he he apparently is like the, you know, the moderator for these luminaries. That's right. So how fitting is it that he's suddenly mentioned again? Yeah, it's very fitting. And um, as you had mentioned, um, how that you know the word persecutes kind of can be used as like pushes them in their kind of their circuit, whatever. And I think is it chapter seventeen. Or 19 one of the chapters earlier talks about how the um the luminaries the the stars roll over fire so i don't yeah. know if there's any correlation with that in regards to this little description about them being you know persecuted or, or pushed forward in their circuit but yeah i think that's what i was talking about i think that was in chapter 19 19 and, uh, i think that's what it was talking about and now we get a little bit more 
you know, that was kind of a description thrown at Enoch, but now Enoch's getting to actually see this apparently, which yeah. he says, I went from, from Vince, I went to another place to the West of the ends of the earth. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's really hard to keep, keep up with the directions and in, in yeah. this book, isn't it Sean? Because in chapter 22, um, which, you know, last episode we spent pretty much the entire time talking about is uh, Enoch's time in Sheol. And right. we know Sheol isn't anywhere above the firmament, right? It's right. below us directionally. So when we move on to this chapter 23, he moves on to another place to the west of the ends of the earth. So it, it's it's kind of hard to, to grasp, you know, right. where, where he's being taken with, without understanding the context of prior chapters and, and where he is. And what I love about it is that it does say right off the bat, I went to another place. So if we're, you know, taking the chapter dividers out and we're reading this just continually from 22 to 23, you think, well, he's in Sheol, which is under the earth. How, where, why is he going to the wet? If he's going to the West from that place, then that means what is this talking about? But no, he went out of Sheol to another place and to the Western part of the ends of the earth in this other place. So, yeah, that's right. And of course, here's that famous word again, earth, which translators have used the word earth, which in the Hebrew or the Aramaic would be like the Haaretz, which just means the word land. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about the land of the, the earth, that the land that we live on today? No, because the context is about the luminaries. That's right. So I think that he's above the firmament again in this vision and to the western part of the land, wherever this, because we as we discussed in previous chapters, there's land above the firmament. And so uh, there's actually apparently, you know, some type of cardinal directions, if you will. There's, you know, northwest, east, and south being mentioned upon this land above the firmament. And here he is looking at the star, or at least the fire, that um, that is connected to the movement of the stars and their courses from the western part of the end of this piece of land of earth yeah uh, which is above the firmament which is where the luminaries are so i just it's amazing because we're getting a completely different description of the creation than one that we're used to now sean so, not to belabor this but just to throw a little wrench into the mix here yeah because raguel is showing him this spot and raguel according to chapter uh 20 he watches over or he's in charge of essentially policing uh the luminaries right he, he anyone that wants to transgress their order he's in charge of taking them to a place of punishment right right yeah that's... wondering is it possible that this is a place of punishment because of the very use, usage of the word persecute there i i don't know the, the what it gave me the intention or the thought was because it's it, mentioning their course in the previous um in the previous pat like verse two yeah well it says this course of fire right which persecutes the luminaries of heaven so yeah saw so burning fire which ran without resting and paused not from its course day of the night but it ran regularly and i asked which is uh, regular holy angel answered me and said this course of fire which you've seen is the fire in the west which persecutes all the luminaries of heaven but it's i i don't know i mean it's not mentioning the specific seven luminaries that were that were disobeyed their their ordained courses but it that's says right. all the luminaries of heaven. So that's what kind of led me to think that it's it's for the entire system. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Fine. I just figured I'd throw that in there just because it is it is a little confusing, the wording. Yeah. And depending on which translation you refer to with this passage. But yeah, and I mean that's the way that's the way we're reading it, but other people may may look at it a little differently. I don't 
I just think that, again, this is why we always want to try to keep stuff in context and what little context we have of this, plus the previous context, like you talked about from 19, also from what we read in chapters 20 and 21, they're, they're looking at land above the firmament. And apparently, according to verse one of this chapter, it's at the western end of this piece of land, wherever he is, um, which to me lets me know that it's it's not the place that was described as the prison for these rebellious stars or these rebellious luminaries that didn't keep their ordained courses. Because remember, that place was described as not having a, a firmly fixed earth below or firmament above. Yeah, and it was super dark. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's. You know, I just try to keep it all in the previous context as well as this paragraph. But man, man, it's it's interesting because I don't know exactly. I mean, what is the lake of fire? Could it possibly be the lake of fire that he's seeing here? I personally don't think so because that doesn't really ever seem to have anything to do with the luminaries. It's a place of judgment that's created that seems to be within the valleys of of the mountains of Zion, um, because it can be overseen by the Messiah who's ruling and cast them in there for judgment. So um, fair enough. Yeah. If you guys have any comments on this chapter, if you have any input, please let us know. Yeah. Sean, I can move on to the next chapter. Yeah. Wish, we'll go on to 24 next and uh, guys get ready to have fun. <laughs> this is, this can be a great 24 is, um, is more likely we'll, we'll not finish or we'll not get to 25 this episode. So we got a lot of talk about in 24. So just get ready. All right. First one. And from thence, I went to another place of the earth and he showed me a mountain range of fire, which burnt day and night. And I went beyond it and saw seven magnificent mountains, all differing each from the other. And the stones thereof were magnificent and beautiful, magnificent as a whole of glorious appearance and fair exterior three towards the east, one founded on the other, and three towards the south, one upon the other, and deep rough ravines, no one of which joined with any other. And the seventh mountain was in the midst of these, and excelled them in height, resembling the seat of a throne, and fragrant trees encircled the throne. And amongst them was a tree such as I had never yet smelt, neither was any amongst them, nor were others like it. It had a fragrance beyond all fragrance and its leaves and blooms and wood wither not forever and its fruit is beautiful and its fruit resembles the dates of a palm then i said how beautiful is this tree and fragrant and its leaves are fair and its blooms very delightful in appearance then answered michael one of the holy and honored angels who was with me and was their leader so we're not going to get to michael's response i don't think right john <laughs> no i don't think we will this so what are you reading, Ken? What what sticks out to you when you read oh, this? Oh, man. So, I mean, starting off right from essentially verse one, obviously he's taken to a different place of the earth again. And he's uh, he's shown mountain range of fire, burns day and night. Then we have seven magnificent mountains all differing from each other. And then what stood out to me, Sean, is the mountain that's in the middle of the three on each side. And um, I know we, we've seen that before in other passages, but um, where it says in verse three that it resembles the seat of a throne. And then you have fragrant trees encircled around that throne. To me, yes. I don't know, Sean, but th- this sounds like she was thrown. Yes. It, yeah, that's exactly. This is what we read earlier. This apparently is the mountain whose top of it is uh, made of sapphire. So I think that was what chapter 20. We read about that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, this to me, this is this the mountains that are um, that that are spoken of in Isaiah, but the many glorious mountains of Zion. And what's interesting is, and we'll get to this in just a minute. But what it says that these there's seven mountains total. The seventh mountain is the tallest, but the other three mountains are described as being founded one upon another with deep ravines, so that they did not touch. So how does that work, Ken? How do you have a mountain founded upon another with a deep ravine that doesn't seem to connect or touch? It seems <laughs> to be intentionally crafted by its maker. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure it, absolutely. Looks. I'm trying to picture that in my mind. And I think, I think I'm about to show you a picture here in a minute of what that might possibly look like um, because it's going to connect <laughs> It possibly will connect to the implications of the trees, uh, specifically one tree that's growing upon these mountains, that's encircling this amazing throne-like uh, description, if you will, of the top of the biggest mountain, in the middle of the seventh mountain. All right, so that's what we want to focus on real quick, is that um, he looks at these trees in verse 4, right? And among them there was such a there was a tree such as I'd never yet smelt, neither was any among them, nor were there any other others like it. It had a fragrance beyond all fragrance, and its leaves and blossoms, excuse me, its leaves and blooms and wood wither not forever, and its fruit beautiful, and its fruit resembles the date of a palm. So, so what what did we just read, John? I feel like I guys, I here's what we're gonna put forward in this episode, and we're about to throw some some fun research at you. This, in our opinion, I think we're describing the tree of life. This is not only is it, is it being grown around the throne of God, but as far as the type of tree the tree of life may have been in the Garden of Eden, it, there's a lot of evidence to suggest it's the date palm. So the date palm, um, by the way, I got this shirt on. It's palm trees. This was, uh, <laughs> this was all planned. <laughs> so it's, but guys, the, the day palm is um, a fascinating tree. We've been doing some research on it. And my goodness, guys, I think we found the tree of life. Now, when we talk about this idea of the tree of life and we look at the Garden of Eden, we look at Adam and Eve interacting and being able to eat from you know, the, the fruit of this tree that they call the tree of life. It's, it's, almost, it's almost mythologicalized. It's almost you know, just, just given this, this aura of you know, some supernatural tree that's like glowing. And I mean, you know, you, you hear all kinds of crazy speculation, but guys, this is a real piece of land. There was real animals interacting with him in the garden that he was, he was put in. Remember Adam and Eve were, were created outside the garden. They were put into the garden to tend for it, to tend it and take care of it, which is why when they transgressed, they were taken back out of the garden, which is why at the resurrection, when we're given a heart that can obey his commandments without fail, we're put back in the garden forever. It's called the New Jerusalem at that point, though, or Zion, as the Old Testament prophets called it. But this is a real place with real land, with real grass and real trees, real water. And we got this river of life concept flowing from underneath the throne of Yeshua. We get this in Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22. And along the tree of life, excuse me, along the trees of, uh, excuse me, along the river of life are growing the trees. And Ezekiel 47 tells us there's many trees and in it, is these are called the trees of life and in them you have the you know the the healing of the nations is held up in in the the leaves of the trees and then the fruit which apparently produces each month new a new blossom of fruit is what we're going to be able to eat from as resurrected saints so ken 
I just want to lay this groundwork here for this idea of a tree of life. This isn't some supernatural mystical con. This is a tangible tree that you could walk up to and you could grab its bark. You can grab its leaves. You can grab the, the cluster of the date palms. You can, you know, it's got roots planted in real soil. This is the real thing. So what would stop? Now, this specific tree of life is one that's pure. And this is the big, the big distinction right off the bat, just because I know people are going to have questions. They'd be like, wait, how can you claim the date palm, which grows on, you know, that we can interact with today? How can you claim this a tree of life? Because when Adam and Eve transgressed, God took them out of the garden, specifically saying, lest they reach out of the tree of life and live forever. Right? So he took them away from access to that tree so that they couldn't reach out. But again, we're talking about a tree that was in a perfect environment, a perfect tree, whereas now we live in a corrupted world, a corrupted environment that's not perfect. It's not to meme. And therefore, these whatever trees we have growing today, that's not being watered by the river of life coming from the pure holiness of his throne. <laughs> See, so there's a big difference in context of where that tree was growing and where this and where the modern tree, the date palms that we can see growing around us today. But yeah, as far as learned. you see what I'm saying, but as far as like the actual attributes of the tree itself, even just like us. Okay. It's a great, this is an easy, hopefully, hopefully people can follow and transfer this idea easily. So just like we were perfected in the garden, so we did not have death. We did not die. Our bodies didn't develop sickness or disease. We were intended to live forever. We, you know, that was a whole idea of Adam and Eve were made good. And they were put in the garden. But then when they transgressed, suddenly corruption sets in. And then over a process, no, they no longer function at the high capacity level that they used to. And whatever, you know, now their words are not the same. Now their body is not the same. Now their chemistry is not quite the same. It's not at that perfected level. It's still great. We can still do amazing things and we can still be conduits of God's spirit to actually work righteousness and deeds and signs and wonders and miracles. Jesus is a great example of that. The apostles, the prophets, they're a great example of supernatural things from God flowing through an imperfect vessel. Not, not Jesus. Jesus didn't. He, Jesus was a perfect vessel. But that's what I'm saying, though, is like this natural, this fleshly body that we have right now, that's an imperfect vessel. That's not one that's our resurrection bodies to come. OK, so this is the difference I'm making. We, we can still have the power of God. We can still flow with purity that he can give us. But on our own, we're not eternal. We're not live, we don't have the full capacity of what we will have at the resurrection when we're, when we're made in a spiritual body. So to have trees growing here that would be the same tree that grew in the garden doesn't mean it's exactly has all the same properties or the same, uh, the same long-lasting benefits, all right? Again, the context is different, and it's not watered by the, the river of life. But to have a date palm tree today, to say it's the exact same type of tree, and it grows on the ground with us today, that's an amazing thing to me. And we're going to dig into the properties and the benefits of the date palm tree, and it's going to blow your mind, guys. It's going to blow your mind. Yeah, Sean, when we, when we were going to record this episode last week, um, it was just so fascinating how we stumbled upon this. And literally our minds were blown. Like if you, the viewer could have seen our reaction <laughs> when we were looking into this, it was just, it's insane. Just when you come across this, a little gem like this, like Enoch's showing the date palm and it's in reference to the tree of life and the next chapter actually, which I, I don't think we're going to cover in this episode, but there's no, 
in my opinion, it's it just further strengthens the fact that this is still referring to the the tree of life, this day palm tree, because of you know the properties that are involved on the day of the Lord, which you had already mentioned, Sean, as being um, something that we experience during the resurrection, right? When we're brought into the New Jerusalem, and and you know Yeshua's throne is there, and and the and the water of life comes through the throne, and all the trees are surrounding it, and you know we have access to that tree of life once again. So it's just it was. This is mind blowing when we came across the fact that that this could potentially really be the actual fruit that's being referenced. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and I just want to um, just want to revisit what I was saying just briefly, just to to draw further to the point that because I know can I the reason I'm I'm kind of spending a little bit of time with this idea of trying to help people understand that this can this is the same tree that we see growing around us yet was also in a perfect environment of the Garden of Eden in the beginning and how it can be the same tree, but under different contextual circumstances. Because we have, because people will say, well, you know, well, that doesn't make any sense, Sean. They were specifically told they couldn't eat from the tree of life. That was the point. They were corrupted. Now they had sinned and transgressed. Therefore, they're kicked out. Yet, yet, we see in Revelation, in Ezekiel, Revelation 22, Ezekiel 47, we see that the leaves of the tree of life and the trees of life that grow along the river of life are used for the healings of the nations. Now, when you understand, this is why, you know, we do another show on a on a um, affiliate channel. It's called Parable of the Vineyard. And every Wednesday night, uh, Ken and I do a show called The Road to Rescue, where we discuss um, the details of the day of the Lord. And we break it down throughout scripture. Part of those details is that once the Messiah returns, he takes care of the wicked and he roots them out of the land Then the new Jerusalem sets down. But there's survivors from the nations that, you know, people that were the family members of the men that tried to fight him at his return at the Battle of Armageddon. So those family members who are survivors, they have to come to the new Jerusalem for provisions. And as Ezekiel 47, Revelation 22 tells us, they're actually going to come for healing for whatever ailments they may have. And that healing is going to come from these trees that grow along the river of life from the leaves specifically of these trees. So That's the reason right. the reason why I'm saying that, Ken, is because that these are people that are not resurrected. These are survivors. So these are people that are still in a fleshly body because at the resurrection, we receive a new type of body. It's a spiritual body, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15. The spiritual body is, is completely different, right? We're going to be perfected. We This is why it's called being made perfect in Hebrews 11. And we don't need healing because we'll, we're not sick, right? That's right. But yet we're taking a, a, a tree of life, which is growing in the perfect garden of God, the paradise of God, and they're going to use that to give, to provide healing to the people outside. So what I'm saying is you've got something inside a perfect zone, and the leaves of it are being used to heal people outside the perfect zone. But they're not eating of the fruits of the tree of life. So that's the context I hope people can can keep in frame when we think about Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, God saying, lest they reach out, take and eat from the fruit of the tree of life. That's not what's happening in the millennial reign. The, the survivors outside the New Jerusalem are being healed from the, from the components or the medicine created from the leaves of the tree of life. Big difference. That's right. Okay. And that's why they're able to, to live like relatively long lives, right? Exactly. Because you know, being, you know, yeah. 100 years old, that's nothing really, right? Yeah, this is, you know, like, I, I'm always, I always laugh when I think of uh, those verses, Isaiah 11 and different places, it talks about the, 
you know, the, uh, if a man dies at a hundred is considered a tragedy because he'd be considered a child, you know, and that's, uh, and I laugh because I think of all the advertising for cosmetics, like, uh, puns, anti-aging cream, you know what I mean? <laughs> and that how much money is spent on people trying to buy things to make their wrinkles go away and to make them have a more youthful appearance, surgery, plastic surgery is done. Um, they're even talking about in the next 30 years, being able to do genetic modification so that you can live an extra 30 to 50 years longer so that you could go in at 60 year old, 60 years old can and get your DNA tweaked. And then you can live another 50 or 60 years and still look like you're 40 or whatever. You know what I mean? And like, so people are definitely wanting to remain youthful. Obviously no one, no one wants to die. It's kind of a, according to Hebrews two, it is, it is the bondage. It is the slavery that we're in bondage to is the sphere of death. And so, um, I think that it's interesting because, you know, I, I laugh, you know, when I see these commercials for this anti-aging cream, I'm like, man, wait till the trees of life get here, you know, because yeah. you're going to have, you're going to be able to, um, to live, you know, it's almost a thousand years old or maybe to a thousand years old in the end of the millennium, you know, um, because you're going to be having access to the, the healing power of the leaves of the trees of life. And that's um, just the leaves. That's so fascinating, Sean. And yeah. speaking of the leaves, um, you know, the leaves of the, the date palm that exist today in our corrupted world, um, you know, the majority of them from what I found, Sean, and you guys, you know, obviously do your research, look online, and there's a ton of information regarding date palms and health properties regarding, you know, the fruit itself and the flowers and, um, you know, the, the, uh, the palm leaves themselves. But um, there's some fascinating health benefits, Sean, to not only the fruit, but since we're talking about the, the healing of the nations from the leaves of the trees um you know there's stuff that exists today that's uh, like palm oil like date palm oil and, and yeah. some of the the properties um surrounding this stuff is just incredible when i looked into the sean it just like my my jaw dropped to the floor like yeah. some of the things that it talks about it says um some of the health benefits are breast it fights breast cancer diabetes hypertension inflammation oxidative stress neurodegeneration cognitive functions, dyslipidemia, uh, cardiovascular, liver, kidney, neuroprotective properties, and hypercholesterol. Um, there's a, a slew of them, Sean. They're like, it, it's a never-ending list, it seems, uh, of good things, right? Yeah. In, in but, contrast to like, you know, Big Pharma and, and their negative <laughs> uh, slew of different things that go wrong with with taking their, their, uh, their stuff. But man, it's just insane. One of the things you just read off, did you, did you read off, um, neural something about neural yeah, neural protective properties? You know what that immediately makes me think of is Alzheimer's and dementia. Yeah. Yeah. Neurodegeneration. Neural degeneration. Yeah. yeah. That would be uh, in my, as far as I know, that would prevent dementia and, and Alzheimer's. So, um, I mean, guys, and I found even there's other properties about it. Like you already talked about, uh, preventing cancer. Um, there it just natural energy boosting properties. Apparently it's healthier to use to fry up foods than, than other types of oils because it's trans fat, you know, and so, or it's trans fat free. Um, but, and apparently, uh, Asian cuisines and other types of African cultures have used the palm oil for cooking for many years. And, and that's been kind of a common thing where they, you know, we've always joked that certain, certain, uh, ethnic groups seem to look younger. You know, could it be right. no, it's they're true, using yeah. this palm oil to, to cook their food in? Um, also, like you already mentioned, preventative uh, treatments of cancer because um, it's super antioxidant rich. 
Um, it also is helps with blood clots and and you know the capillaries and blood vessels and, and yeah, high blood pressure, hypercholesterol, like high cholesterol, right. all those things yeah, that you get from cholesterol. eating unclean foods and all that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's high in beta carotene. Um, it's even got vitamin K. It's got omega threes, right? Um, uh, vitamin E, vitamin D. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it even can serve as a prenatal for women that are pregnant. And um, I mean, there is an amazing guys, you know. We strongly encourage you to go out and research the benefits of palm oil and because there is seems to be a lot of natural benefits, just all compact in the one. You know, we hear about super uh, super vitamins or like super vegetables. Right. And uh, this seems to be like a super oil. And I just think that that's fascinating. Yeah, it is, man. It really is. And um, what's interesting is I had gotten a uh, what's called a bioscan about a year ago. And they check all the different things, tox- toxic levels in your body and stuff. And uh, one of the things that I read high on was uh, aluminum. And um, so I was prescribed, if I recall correctly, it was a phytogen, which is like a kind of like a root of a, um, of a plant or tree. And in particular, I had to take pine tree phytogen to combat my aluminum levels. And, it, and when I had gone back to do the bioscan, it, it significantly lowered that level so i just find it fascinating that something like a pine tree you know phytogen would lower levels like that of toxicity um in my body but then reading this this oil just seems like it would it would do the same thing and then some you know yeah yeah and you know what this makes me i mean apparently this is there's so much in this to this idea of the palm oil um you know first thought that starts running through my mind and this isn't something that we prepared to talk about but Ken, does scripture tell us the oil that they poured on Aaron's head when they anointed him, high priest? I'm sure they did, Sean, but off I don't the top remember. Of my head, I don't. I don't recall what type of oil it was exactly. I, I'm sure I don't you remember. Um, that up real quick, but um, well, and I should I should throw this out. We're not health practitioners or professionals or anything, so don't don't take what we have to say in this episode and and you know go promoting that we're you know essentially saying that this is going to take rid of this and and cure you of things guys do your homework we just think that there's some interesting connections revolving um, yeah, absolutely around this stuff so we are we are not nutritionists we're not uh like you said medical practitioners this is not professional advice this is just people discussing what we researched about the palm oil yeah. uh, from from palm trees and um specifically with the date palm concept um, let me just screen share for a minute because I want to I want to show some images to the viewer about some of the research I found concerning, like I said at the beginning of the show, we're going to talk about how this relates. Um, we're going to talk about how this relates to the beast revelation, the Antichrist. And, you know, I think uh, and then, of course, how that also relates with Yeshua as well in response to that. But just real quick, let me jump into, you know, what? before we do this, actual Ken. I think we should probably read from scripture from the can of 66. Yeah. There's, there's a bunch of things. Yeah. Let's go into a couple of the verses that it talks about. I think there's also a place in second Ezra's right in second Ezra's there's in four Maccabees and also in, um, the wisdom of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to read actually I'll, I'll read the, um, let's do this in chronological order. Shall we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how about uh, which parts of the extra biblicals, the apocryphals, do you want to read? Do you want to read those three that you have? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll start with um, 
for Maccabees. It's the last chapter in the fourth book of Maccabees, uh, chapter 18. I'll start in verse 9 just to give some context. And this is a woman talking about her, her sons who essentially were persecuted for their faith and they didn't want to eat any unclean meat. And so they were tortured and killed. Oh, um, starting verse 9, it says, In the time of my maturity, I remained with my husband. And when these sons had grown up, their father died. A happy man was he who lived out his life with good children and did not have the grief of bereavement. While he was still with you, he taught you the law and the prophets. He read to you about Abel slain by Cain and Isaac, who was offered as a burnt offering, and of Joseph in prison. He told you of the zeal of Phinehas, and he taught you about Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael in the fire. He praised Daniel and the den of lions and blessed him. He reminded you of the scripture of Isaiah, which says, Even though you go through the fire, the flame shall not consume you. He sang to you songs of the psalmist David, who said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And in verse 16 here, he recounted to you Solomon's proverb saying there is a tree of life for those who do his will. So that's interesting. It's interesting, Sean, because I have the, um, there's four references in Proverbs, um, the only four that I could spot that uh, mention anything to do with the tree of life. But um, I'm not 100% sure where this four Maccabean um, proverb, where they're pulling that from exactly, where it says, there is a tree of life for those who do his will. It might just be sur the surrounding context of these four Proverbs. I can read those real quick, Sean, just to, so that the viewers at home can see that this is in the book of Proverbs as well. Yeah, sure. So in Proverbs 3.18, we have, she is a tree of life. She, he's talking about wisdom here. He, uh, Solomon tends to personify things like wisdom in uh, female ways. So he's saying, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all. Who hold her fast then in proverbs eleven thirty, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who is wise wins souls and then in proverbs thirteen twelve, we have hope deferred makes the heart sick but desire fulfilled is a tree of life and finally in proverbs 15 4 it says a soothing tongue is a tree of life but perversion is sorry but perversion in it crushes the spirit Awesome. And that's, that's definitely some attributing attributes to the concept of, you know, the tree of life, right? Things that produce exactly. life, which is words, words and actions that produce life. That's right. Now, what did you said you find some also um, some mentions in, in the book of Sirach and also second. Yeah. Others? Yeah. And um, I can read out of Sirach here. And interestingly enough, it's, I'm reading this one out of the Etzefer because this, the, there's two verses in chapter 19, um, verses 18 and 19, that are missing out of other versions. So they'll skip. They'll go right from 17 to 20 in other versions. But in the, at Sefer, they have verse 18 and 19 here, which says, The fear of Yahweh is the first step to the accepted of him, and wisdom obtains his love. The knowledge of the commandments of Yahweh is the doctrine of life, and they that do things that please him shall receive the fruit of the tree of immortality. And that's obviously referring to the tree of life. Nice. Yeah. It's odd that it's not in other versions, but yeah. Yeah. It's got you covered for that one. Um, and then second Ezra's here. Did you, did you have those pulled up or do you want me to read them? Cause I got a couple. Oh, you can, you can read it. That's fine. Sure. So um, we're in second Ezra's or uh, for Ezra. It's the same thing. 
chapter two, verse, I'll start in verse 10 here, just to get some context. It says, thus says the Lord to Ezra, tell my people that I will give them the kingdom of Jerusalem, which I was going to give to Israel. Moreover, I will take back to myself their glory and will give to these others the everlasting habitations, which I had prepared for Israel. The tree of life shall give them fragrant perfume and they shall neither toil nor become weary. That's awesome. That's interesting, isn't it? The yeah. mention of uh, the fragrant perfume. It corresponds with what Enoch says, right? About how yeah. what he's smelling there is amazing and something that's kind of unprecedented. He's never smelt anything like it before. Yeah, we just that's uh, we just read that. That's in verse 4 of Enoch 23. That's right. Um, so that's a, that's a great callback uh, to Enoch from Ezra. Ezra, of course, you know, is also in the canon of 66, but for some reason, 2nd Ezra's, and, or 4 Ezra, was not put in there. Uh, or was actually taken out, right, Ken? That's right, it was, yes. <laughs> it was taken out. It was in there at one point, but it was taken out. Why? Why would you keep a prophet's writings, you know, first and second Ezra in the book of Ezra? Why would you keep that in there, but then take out his other writings? There's it, too much in it, Sean. There's way too much information in this. We're going to get to this book eventually on this on this yeah. uh, show. But. I definitely hope to. Um, just to me, that's a, that's, a big, that's a big red flag to me. Yeah, I know. No kidding, eh? So just uh, real quick here, the the, the, um, the second reference in Second Ezra is, is from chapter, I think it's eight, yeah, chapter eight, and then I'll start in verse 50 here. Okay, yeah. It says, for many miseries will affect those who inhabit the world in the last times, because they have walked in great pride. But think of your own case and inquire concerning the glory of those who are like yourself. And then in verse 52 here is where it says, because it is for you that paradise is opened, the tree of life is planted. The age to come is prepared. Plenty is provided. A city is built. Rest is appointed. Goodness is established and wisdom perfected beforehand. It's amazing. It's a good summation of all good things to come, man. And right smack dab in the middle of this is the tree of life planted for, for those who are going to experience that amazing, um, you know, part of our great hope of our inheritance. So we are talking about the date palm, right? And with the and with the palm tree idea, um, we're just finding correlations to both the tree of life that's mentioned in Enoch, as as Enoch calls it, the date palm. And then we're gonna and we're looking through scripture at some of the mentions of the tree of life, its applications, its uses. It's layered a lot throughout the canon of sixty six. And then we also got lots of mentions in the apocryphal books. But Ken, think about this, man. What is Sukkot? Sukkot is building. The, the many rooms that Yeshua went to go prepare in his father's house for us, that's what we're doing in practice form, right? That's the staging we're doing through the practice of keeping the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which means it's the Feast of Booths, right? You build your own little booth, your own little uh, tent, so to speak, and you cover the top of it with palm trees. That's right. Date palm fronds. <laughs> the palm fronds. I mean, <laughs> guys, it's right there. Like all, all this symbology is right there to, to allude to you know, just how ingrained in the in the the course of the whole of Scripture is the Garden of Eden and the components within the Garden of Eden. So, guys, this I mean, what I'm getting at is like this brings to full full context Genesis two. Guys, we got Genesis two and three. We got the the Garden of Eden. We got the Tree of Knowledge, Good and Evil, Tree of Life. We got you know this place is like I've I've done interviews in the past and I've you know done full videos um, on trying to explain how Zion to come, the new Jerusalem to come is just the garden of Eden enlarged and made bigger to accommodate everyone from the first resurrection. 
And but it's the same place. It is the house of God, the paradise of God, and that this was what was planted down in the creation model. And uh, and then it was retracted, in my opinion, after the flood. It, it went through the flood, as in my opinion, as Isaiah forty nine alludes to. And so, therefore, it's going to come back. It's going to come back down into through the ferment, back into our realm of living, um, which is what's going to be called the New Jerusalem. And so, we got from start to finish, from Genesis two to Revelation twenty two, thematically throughout the entire book, the application of this idea first introduced as the Garden of Eden and the components therein it's like so you know i geek out on it because i you know i love to write and any good writer any good author is going to bring that story full circle he's going to bring the details that he mentioned to the context of the setting that the story is taking place in at the beginning of the book he's going to bring all that to relevance in the denouement at the end of the book because that's what a good writer does <laughs> and that is this great story we're living in that's what we see happening so that's right real so you, sorry, before you get in there, I just um, I just wanted to clarify something with you. So you had you had mentioned that you believe that the Garden of Eden went through the flood, as Isaiah um, seems to allude to, right? I agree with you on that. So then, when we're reading out of um, you know chapter twenty four here in the book of Enoch, where he's seeing the tree of life, mm -hmm. he's technically it's still on the ground, right? It's still on our earth plane during this time. Am I correct in, in saying that? It's not above the firmament. It would still be technically. Well, didn't um, we see that the uh, in earlier chapters that somehow the tree of life was transplanted? Was it transplanted right away? Was that is that in the earlier chapters you read in Enoch, or is that in later chapters? I'm trying to remember. I believe that um, I think it's chapter twenty. Was it twenty six where it talks about the knowledge of good and evil got transplanted or removed? Um, which they both, according to Genesis, they both were in the midst of the garden. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know it's going to be transplanted again. The, the tree of life is transplanted, right? It, it talks about. Right. Okay. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to. No, I agree with you. Here where, where Enoch is right now, where he's seeing this technically, if, if we're going to go with the idea that. Yeah. Um, and the, if the garden still could be on the ground before the flood. Yes. And but what, what we want to try to figure out though is that were these mountains on the ground in the Garden of Eden before the flood? Were these mountains that we were described that's being described here? These massive mountains, uh, was that on the ground too? Was that part of the garden, or was it um, a smaller area? And this is the kind of the the question. And that's that I don't know because we know this place is enlarged, and then therefore there's many mountains within the the New Jerusalem. Um, I, that's a great question, though, because if he's looking at it with this other, because at the beginning of chapter 23, we're still assuming that he's above the firmament because he went to another place and 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 he saw the course of the luminaries. But then in 24, as we read, it says he went to another place, but it doesn't really tell us uh, down left, right, does it? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you there, man. I just, okay. as soon as you it's start okay. talking about it being storm tossed and afflicted, I was just wondering, well, the tree of life would have been in the midst unless it, like you said, it did get extracted and removed maybe at a point in time that we aren't really sure of when, but. Well, that's why I also mentioned Ezekiel 47 where there's multiple trees of life. So whereas we had one in the garden um, and then he saw this and Enoch is also seeing this one. Um, clearly it doesn't have to remain just this specific one. You can have multiple trees of life. Right. 
that makes sense. Yep. So it's um, which would make sense if you have many, many more people <laughs> so, than just uh, Adam and Eve, right? Yeah, you'd be tearing and, that tree apart if it was. Just one yeah, tree, right? <laughs> and it also gives its fruit every uh, twelve times a year, right? Every month it bears fruit, which yeah. would make sense if you got a lot of people needing to, need to eat off of it. So um, I, I think that yeah, you're right. We don't get an actual you know directional phrase in the beginning of chapter twenty four is where he went and he saw this mountain range and this tree, um, it could absolutely still be within the boundaries of the, me personally, like I said, for my research uh, and in the Garden of Eden, I personally believe that the, it was encased in a firmament style wall, just like we see the new Jerusalem is. And um, that's why they couldn't get back in. And that's why the angel guarded the exterior that of it in all all directions, right? Because he can guard, all, all four, you know, uh, all four ways, if you yeah. will, all four walls of it, you know, um, so which would make sense if it comes back down four square as a city, as the New Jerusalem enlarged. So that's where uh, I've said playfully, you know, in the past that you've got this environment. You, you it's very, it's very uh, possible that you have this environment that the Garden of Eden itself was on the ground until the flood, which means you've got about sixteen hundred fifty-six years of people propagating. And engaging in wickedness, the Nephilim are on the earth, running around engaging in wickedness and transpeciation and doing all this stuff and all this lawlessness. And all the while, they can see in the distance the Garden of Eden. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. That's wild. That's, yeah. I mean, it's like a living testimony to them um, of what they could be doing, right? The promise of where they would get to at the resurrection, but yet they're intentionally defying it and going after other means. And therefore, and again, to me, this would even make sense for, for the motivation of the Tower of Babel. If you've got Noah post-flood telling his kids, as well as Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who were all pre-flood and had seen the tower and seen the Garden of Eden on the ground and how it reached up into the heavens and how it was extracted. And then suddenly afterwards, you've got a guy, audacious as Nimrod, who's trying to say, hey, I want to get up there. It's up there. I'm going to get there. Right. So, right. And he's wanting to break through and kill God. Which, if this throne is in the mountains of the Garden of Eden, then that would make sense. Yeah. But it's just very, very. I know that we're doing some speculation because we're not getting literal directional terms from Enoch, but and I'm pulling from a bunch of different research and resources um, on the Day of the Lord. But since I mentioned Nimrod, let's just jump into this real quick, okay, guys? So I've done an entire video. I'm going to put up here on the screen, um, stating the case from Scripture. It's called uh, Apollyon, um, the beast who was, is not, and yet will be, and it's. Uh, basically, throughout this video, I express with many, many scriptures all throughout the canon of 66 how I've connected, you know, Nimrod from Genesis 10, born through the lineage of, what was it, uh, Shem? No, no. He was born through uh, Ham, the or, lineage yeah, of Ham. Ham, Ham right, yeah. And um, that he is the one who became the pantheon, the head of the pantheons, if you will. He is the one who's been called Baal. He's been the one that's referred to as Molech. Um, He's the one that's referred to as Osiris to the Egyptians. He's also Apollo or Apollyon to the Greeks in their pantheon of gods. But real quick, I want to focus on the Egyptian um, lore about Osiris because, and guys, just spoiler alert, I in that video, I make the connection directly that he is the Apollyon that comes out of the pit in Revelation 9 and that he is the beast in Revelation 17 explains who the beast was who came out of the pit. He's the one in Micah 5 that it says that the Messiah will, you know, trample upon his mountains, uh, the Assyrian who's, who the Messiah tramples upon his mountains. So 
real quick, let's just look at some of the ideas about um, um, Osiris and how it connects to the palm date and uh, or the this date. Is pretty palm. wild, guys. All right, here we see a basic idea of the palm tree, of the date palm. Okay, so it's got this this uh, coalesced, if you will, uh, type of um, base trunk, and then it extends in a, a more uh, bulbous type of circular fashion towards the top. Sean, you know, it almost looks like a pine cone, eh? At the top there. Yeah. There's right. we've seen pine cone imagery before, haven't we? In hieroglyphs and stuff. Yeah, and the pine cone seems to be like a really big deal within the occult. Yeah. But uh, as far as this palm tree here, this is one that's been stripped of its leaves. It's been actually cut down. So you've got this trunk, you got the bulbous top, and then you've got the leaves stripped off of it. Um, here's another one where you're going to have um, it's been stripped as well, and so you have these unique veins around it. Right. I don't know exactly these nodes, if you will. Ken, this is what I was saying. It reminds me of this idea of something that can have the um, where it says the mountains were built upon one another, but they had deep ravines and crevices. So you have the central base from which these nodes extend. So they're built upon what one is higher than the other, but then in between them are these deep ravines. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. So it's almost as if the, the because, you know, uh, that's a unique description to say the mountains are built one upon another. But it's almost as if you have the description of the mountains within Zion itself kind of resemble the exterior bark of the of these date palms. And then on top of them, you got the date palms growing around the throne of Yeshua, which I think is fascinating. Now, guys, real quick, let's look into this. This is the depiction of the Dejid in ancient Egypt. So in ancient Egypt, Osiris was strongly associated with the Dejid, which was this pillar that is the exact same shape of the palm tree that's stripped of its leaves. And so this particular uh, hieroglyph representation, you've got these two giants holding a Dejid pillar. You've got the sun with the raw sun up here with the two snakes coming out of it, which is raw. You've got some imagery of Osiris everywhere, but you've got uh, the, you know, the giants and the, and the regular sized person trying to help, I guess, put up this pillar. Now what they, and I did in my Polyon video, I explained the pillar in depth and how it was always related to Osiris and it's a kind of a mysterious object, but I, I, guys, I think I might've solved the mystery. Like, I'm not sure. I, I was, I know there's a lot of speculation that this pillar is associated with electricity. And so that's where some of the modern theories go with, and I don't doubt it. It's very possible. Ancient Egypt could have had their own form of electricity. They use um, at the elite level, but this particular column was associated with the backbone of Osiris. It's also um, considered to have great power for resurrection, which is why it's like in this hieroglyph here, it's associated directly with the Ankh. And if any guys are familiar with this Ankh, which is basically like a cross with, a, with an oval on top, the Ankh was always associated with resurrection, and that was one of the main symbols of Osiris. So in this little picture here, these little, these, you know, multiple um, hieroglyphs, you've got the bottom here, which would be the boat of Ra, which would be the boat of a million years is what they would call it, how it tra traversed the sky where Ra dwelt. Then you've got the staff of Ra, which means his authority, which is the authority that, you that Osiris actually uh, moved in. Okay, this is why I, I put forth in my other video and in Scripture in Revelation 13, Satan is the raw character and Apollyon moves the beast that comes out of the pit, moves under the authority of the dragon from Revelation 13. 
and the dragon gives the beast all of his authority so that people will follow after the beast, just like we have the dichotomy with Ra and Osiris in ancient Egypt, which is why you have all the symbology together. You've got the tree of life, which would be the date palm, the boat of Ra, the, the authority of Ra, which is Satan, and then you've got the res the idea of resurrection, and this is where I would I would tell people to you know continue to research if they will, but if you understand who Osiris was in the past, past, he was the only ancient god that's talked about in the pantheons that was destined to return for one and to be resurrected. So I guess those are in reverse order. He's to be resurrected and then to return. So of all the gods, of all the gods mentioned in the Greek pantheon, the Osiris, uh, or excuse me, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, Osiris, who's also called Baal, who's also called Apollo or Apollyon, who's also called um, Ninurta, he was the only one of them that was talked about as he would come back in the latter days and he would be resurrected. We see that in Revelation 9. It comes up as Apollyon. Revelation 17 explains that to us and identifies him as the beast. And guys, and Revelation 13 tells us he rolls in the authority of Ra, Satan, of, of the Satan character. So, and we've got all this imagery of the tree of life. It's also said that, you know, and in, in other uh, ancient legends of, of Osiris, that the palm tree was his favorite tree. <laughs> and so wow. we have all this imagery of the Dejed, this mysterious object, when it just possibly it could be more imagery for the, the date palm, which is what Enoch is telling us is the tree of life. And we know that um, um, Osiris lived, I mean, according to some accounts, he lived over 200 years. A lot of these guys are living a lot longer during that generation, though, right after the flood. And um, I think it's fascinating, Ken, because we've got some very unique imagery associating strongly this idea of ancient Osiris from ancient Egypt directly to this idea of what Enoch is calling the date palm, which was the tree of life. Now, of course, I want people to understand this real quick. In no way am I saying that 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 osiris was doing anything good or righteous no he was evil he was the epitome of evil he was considered the destroyer which is what he's called as apollyon or abaddon in the hebrew um or shiva in my opinion he's the shiva of of ancient india the destroyer and so there's nothing good about what he's doing but the occult often will use the truth that god gives us the truth of life and try to abscond its meaning and its symbols for their own purposes to attribute those attributes to themselves. And I think that's what we're seeing here with the tree of life and Osiris. Yeah. Wow. That's wild, John. I, I think that uh, you might be onto something and I just find it crazy that, you know, you come across one thing right in this chapter where, where we're told that it's a date palm and how that can just unravel a lot of other things, a lot of other like adjunct um, studies of, of, you know, Nimrod yeah. and, and resurrection and and it's just crazy. It's fascinating. And speaking of resurrection, guy, let me jump real quick to the book of Revelation and let's look in chapter uh, seven. So we get a glimpse of um, those who have been resurrected, the righteous saints in heaven. And then in verse nine, it talks about the multitude from the tribulation. Verse nine says, after these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and the crowd with a loud voice saying salvation to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb all the angels are standing about the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne of god and worship saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor power and might be to our god forever and ever amen 
So all the resurrected saints, they're in their, their resurrection white robes and they got palm branches. So <laughs> Ken, that's crazy, man. So we've got, we've got uh, a mention of the tree of life in Genesis two. It's a couple hundred years later, we got Enoch coming out and telling us that it's the date palm. And then we've got all these references to the palm branches being used in scripture. We found all the healing properties um, of the actual palm oil themselves. But now let's look at an application. Since I just kind of gave you this idea that Osiris, who is the beast of Revelation, tries to abscond in the past. He tried to abscond the meaning of the palm tree um, to use it for symbol to symbolize himself, uh, to symbolize life, eternal life and immortality. And as well as the idea that he's going to be resurrection or he's going to be resurrected, um, which to me is a perversion of the truth. Right. It's a bad thing. Yeah. And here we go. We've got the promise that we're going to get, I guess, our own palm branches and our own, you know, a clothing, clothing, our immortal robes of white ones that will never wear out, according to Enoch 62. And we're praising God with it. And this is the fulfillment of something we've already seen in Luke chapter 19. And I'll go there real quick because I'm going to tie all this together, guys, how Jesus addresses Osiris's bold claim, in my opinion. And this is my, I just want to put this out there. This is my personal interpretation. But from all the research I've done on who Osiris was, ancient Egypt and their symbols and what they claim for themselves. And we read the, about the triumphal entry in Luke 19. Okay, if you'll give me just a minute, I'll read this off to us and then I'll explain what I'm talking about. In verse, uh, Luke 19, verse 28, and he said, And after he said these things, he was going on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you there as you enter. You will find a colt tied on, which no one has yet ever set. You not untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying it? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Um, so this is a unique event, right? Interesting. Yeah, I've always wondered yeah. about this, Sean. Now, in this particular passage, um, there's, there's a parallel, as we know, right? They're spreading their coats. Um, I think it's in Matthew that the event says that they had palm branches that they're waving. Yeah. I have to go to that one. one I'm not sure which one it is, but they definitely had palm branches in their hands waving them. Now, the the reason why I wanted to kind of focus in on that one was because um, uh, that one talked about he came in on the colt. Okay. So what's interesting is that the, the colt is not, the colt is a, is a male son. So it's it's a child donkey, if you will. It's not the, the mother father donkey, right? And there's some description, there's some uh, discrepancy. People claim that, you know, this is a, um, this is a contradiction in the gospels that, you know, but if you compare the synoptic gospels together, you see that the other one talked about, there was the mother and the cult, right? And in fact, and this is in Matthew 21, verse two, it's saying, and going to the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a cult with her. So the, the greater context of the story was that it was a mother and a donkey cult. So the mother and son. And he rides in on the colt specifically. And then, of course, um, um, 
and it says they were cutting the branches, the palm branches from the trees, and later verse verse eight and nine singing and shouting Hosanna, right? So, <laughs> and this is of course where we get this famous practice in modern Christianity of Palm Sunday, right? That's so right. We, this is kind of something. This is common knowledge to a lot of people. But what I don't think is common knowledge is the fact that he's he's riding in on the colt, not the mother, but the colt. And he does it specifically while the palm branches are being waved and shouting, he's the king, Hosanna, glory in the highest. Guys, in, in some of the, the legends of ancient Egypt was that Ra, one of the reasons why they used to bury donkeys in some of the tombs of the pharaohs was because there was this story. And, you know, it's just, you know, like a legend type of story from ancient Egypt was that, you know, Ra was represented by the sun in ancient Egypt. And as it would rise up over the horizon, um, apparently one day, you know, someone looked out and there was uh, 77 donkeys that were on the horizon in the field. And therefore they couldn't see from their perspective, they couldn't see the sun rising as fast as it normally does. So they came up with this idea that the donkeys were preventing raw from rising, which sounds kind of funny, right? But as a result of that, because, you know, they're Egyptian occultists and everything was superstitious. So as a result of that, they then had this, this revere and respect for the donkey and they would bury these donkeys within the tombs of the pharaohs. Um, I don't want to say as a good luck charm, but just as kind of a part of all their symbology with their animals and different things they did. And that's why many, many tombs have been uncovered and they found out donkeys were buried with them as well as their gold and servants and different things like that. And so we got this song, the symbol of the donkey was actually became synonymous in ancient Egypt with Ra, who we understand in the scriptures would be the Satan character. Okay, <laughs> which this is not a, a slight against the Democrat Party's logo in the United States, but, but hey, <laughs> you've got a donkey for your logo, so you may want to re rethink that anyway. So <laughs> I'm sure it's but, purposefully put on there, right? <laughs> I bet so. So then you've got the colt, which is not the son, which is not the father or the mother donkey, but it's the son. So now you've got a situation where in ancient Egypt. Osiris was considered the, you know, the Lord of the underworld after he died and he was engrafted into the authority of Ra, just like we see in Revelation 13. So you have Ra as the father parent, you know, authority, and then Osiris who ruled in his father's authority and was considered the Lord of the underworld. And as we see in Revelation 13 is considered the beast, the Antichrist that comes back as a polyon. Guys, Yeshua is riding in on the cult. He's riding in on the symbolic Osiris showing mastery over the Osiris character on the cult while the palm branches, which represents the tree of life, which Osiris tried to abscond to take meaning for himself. And that meaning and attribution, excuse me, that meaning and the attributed meaning of the palm trees are being given to Yeshua, who's the true king, ruling in Yahweh, the Most High's authority. So I've jokingly said this in the past, but this whole triumphant entry moment, is layered in symbology towards Egypt to refute the claims of Egypt and what they claim through Osiris, who would essentially be, you know, um, the one he has to face on Judgment Day anyway. At the return, at his return, he faces Apollyon, the Assyrian anyway. So this is like a this is like a wonderful moment, right? Where he's just he's just thrown out to the entire world. Everyone who knows the symbols of this event, he's telling them all, "No, I'm the king. He's not the king." I'm I'm riding on his back because I'm the king and people are throwing the tree of life symbology at me because Yeshua is the king. It's the ultimate proleptic insult, Sean. 
It truly is. It's, I mean, it borderlines on an insult. It borderlines on a, you know, on, on a chin flick to, to Osiris, uh, because this, he's basically telling these guys, or he's telling anyone who knows with eyes to see from the occultic, like all the Pharisees, in my opinion, or anybody that's an infiltrator from Rome, uh, that would have been practicing and understood the symbols of the occult. He's telling them right up. No, he's not the king. Osiris isn't the king. I'm the king. Yeshua is the king. So I, I think it's a wonderful story. And when we understand some of these, some of these, uh, these pictures, these images layered into it. And now that we we're getting a bigger, deeper imagery from the tree of life, man, it makes so much sense to me. That's insane, Sean. It, there's a lot to chew on there. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it makes sense. And a lot of it can only make sense if you understand date bombs. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and guys, as you're watching this, you many may have questions. Feel free to put them in the comments below. Um, we'll be happy to get to them when we have time. And, um, because there's a lot here and we, we, we love to answer your questions. Do your own research, come to your own conclusions. This is what we found from the book of Enoch in this particular episode. And man, I've been excited to present it to you guys. And I hope that it's been edifying and encouraging. Uh, Ken, I think we've come to the end of this episode. Do you have any parting words? No, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around everything we've discussed. I mean, it's relatively new information for me. Um, like I said, we we stumbled across this literally last week, and a lot of it has has um, just blown my mind. So, as Sean has already iterated, please ask questions, and we'll we'll try to we'll try to get to them. And join us for uh, episode nine next week. Yeah, this was something that um, th this whole concept of of the palm tree. I knew it was in scripture. I knew it was part of the code. We knew, we knew some of these basics, but we didn't know how much it applied. Also, uh, back in 2013, I had researched the idea of the two cults to try to reconcile that because that was brought up to me as a contradiction. And, and that's where I stumbled onto this idea of Osiris being represented as the small cult and, and how the palm branches was supposedly the palm tree was Osiris's favorite tree. So I saw the symbology in, in the triumphant entry in Matthew 21 and Luke 19. And I was like, oh, this is perfectly fitting. You know, Yeshua is just uh, rubbing it in his face that he's not the king. That Yeshua is the king, you know what I mean? Osiris yeah. is not. So I thought that was great, but I didn't have the further context until I until I researched this idea of the date palm and meaning equating to the tree of life from Enoch 24. So guys, it's been a fun episode. Thank you for joining us. Um, like, share, and subscribe. If you haven't already subscribed, you don't want to miss out for next week, so make sure to hit the button and the bell so you're notified when new videos come out. And, um, uh, you know, the... One way, if, you, if this video edified you and blessed you, the way that you can bless others with it is to comment and share and like it. That way it'll put it up in the sidebar algorithms from YouTube and other people can click on it and get some of this good information. Thank you for joining us in honor of Kings. Ken, thank you for joining me, man. It's been great as always. Great. Thank you. Yeah, man, you're a great co-host as always. It's always fun digging in the scriptures with you. And guys, come see us next week, next Saturday night as well on Honor of Kings, and we'll continue to dive into this amazing book of Enoch. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Sean Griffin. Welcome to Kingdom in Context.